We're in chapter 4, the last chapter of this uh, fairly short letter that Paul is writing to the Philippians. And we've talked about uh, how when Paul writes, there's oftentimes a theme to what it is that he is, is, is writing about. There's sometimes a number of smaller themes, but there's usually a, an overarching theme. And the overarching theme of this letter is partnership in the gospel. Paul and the Philippians are partners in the gospel. The, the Christians in Philippi, they've been partnering with Paul as he takes the gospel to people in other cities, in other nations, people who have yet to hear the good news. Paul is going out taking that good news to them of Jesus Christ, and the church is partnering with him in doing that. How has the church been partnering with him? Well, several ways. And we can learn from how the church partnered with Paul, how we as a church then partner with, those, uh, with missionaries and so forth, those who go out. Uh, number one, they prayed for Paul. They were a church that prayed for Paul. They would communicate with Paul. They would send letters to him uh, so that they could encourage him. Uh, they send care packages to Paul. As a matter of fact, he's writing this letter as a thank you note in response to the fact that they had sent care to him. Financially, they were supporting him. They even send human resources, like people who love Jesus, are gifted by the Lord, to come and serve alongside of Paul uh, in, in the ministry that he's doing. And so uh, there's, there's a lot that the church is doing to support Paul. Of course, Paul, on the other end, is partnering with the Philippians. And any, any partnership, partnerships go both ways. There's something that's given by one, and there's something that's given by the other. Paul is partnering with the Philippians, and the first way he partnered was by being the one to bring the gospel to them. So that wasn't because they requested it. It was because God sent him. The Lord made it very clear to Paul, you need to go to this, this place. And Paul went to that place, and God brought people to him. And as he shared uh, the good news of Jesus with them, they started walking with the Lord. And so Paul brought the gospel to them. And it was costly to him to do that. Paul suffered for it, remember? He didn't get to stay in Philippi very long because he got beat up and thrown in prison for sharing the gospel. Not only Paul, but Silas with him. And then after leaving Philippi, uh, Paul continued to support them in their growth in Christ, either by visiting them, opportunities that he would have to come and, and, and uh, come back to Philippi and talk to them, or by writing letters and instructing them. You know, this is uh, one of the letters that we have. So Paul ministered to them, and they ministered to him. Paul even goes further, and he's going to send his right-hand man, Timothy, to them. That's another way of partnering. He sends, they were sending people to him, and he sends somebody back to them to help instruct them. So it's a beautiful partnership. You have these believers in Philippi and Paul and his associates all teaming up. They're all making sacrifices to see people one to Christ and growing in Christ. In church, that's the normal thing. Okay, for us as Christians, that's normal life. That shouldn't be extraordinary to us. That should be what we see as that's the ordinary calling for us as believers. Now, in any partnership, there are certain things that can do damage to the relationships that are involved. Certain things that can negatively impact the effectiveness of that partnership. So if you've ever been involved in a partnership, such as a marriage, uh, you know that you can say things or do things, and, and all of a sudden, the partnership isn't working real well. 
That's true as well in partnering for the gospel. For instance, sometimes circumstances change. So, so we go into it with one thing in mind and we have, uh, uh, you know, Paul is going out and he's going to go uh, share the good news and he's going to be this evangelist and so on. And then circumstances change. And oftentimes it's completely out of our control and it can feel like we're not really progressing in what it is that we have set out to do or what we feel that we're called to do. And that can be a major stressor on a partnership. That seemed to be somewhat of a concern for Paul based on what he writes in chapter 1 because after he says thank you, he then kind of gets into this. Paul is in prison in Rome. And that's where he's writing this letter, from prison. And it appears that there were some who were thinking that, eh, you know what, maybe we should possibly end our support of Paul in that ministry. Maybe we need to find somebody else who to partner up with because, you know, this isn't really what we thought it would be. We didn't think we'd be supporting a guy in prison. And so Paul assured them that even though this is a change, it isn't a change that isn't outside of God's work. Paul assured them that prison is where God has sent him at this point, and that it's because he's in prison, because God has, has, has uh, allowed him to be there, that the entire Roman guard is now hearing the gospel. So these are the top soldiers, the ones who would guard uh, Caesar, those are the ones who are guarding Paul. And Paul says, it's only because God has sent me here that those people are hearing the gospel. If we had tried to share the gospel with them, they not, we wouldn't even gotten near them. And so actually, it's an amazing mission field, and it's a very productive mission field as well. It's not what we thought it would be, but God is still in it. Sometimes we go through things maybe even unexpected things, maybe uncomfortable things, maybe painful things. And it can feel like we have been completely taken off course. Maybe you've prayed something like this. God, this is not what we had planned. God, I thought we, you and me, Lord, had this all worked out. And this is not what it was supposed to be. Sometimes the changes we have to make, the adjustments we have to make, as we make those, it feels like loss to us. Think about the pandemic that we're dealing with. As a church, it feels like all these adjustments we have to make are a loss. We'd, we are not, you know, this is second service. We used to only have one service. But we've had to make two services now. There was a season where we couldn't even have service. So we, we've gone through these things and it feels like, well, Lord, Lord, this isn't what we had planned. Feels like maybe we're even in prison. <laughs> we're severely limited. And in many ways we are. Some of you may feel like that in your own homes. You may feel like, man, I'm, I, I'm stuck at home. But what we need to remember is that even though we may feel limited, and in some cases we are experiencing true limitations, God isn't limited. God isn't limited. He's still working, even when it's uncomfortable for us. God's point is not to make our life comfortable. I wish that was a part of the gospel, but it's actually not. God's goal is not to make our life comfortable. 
And I think that in time, we're going to be able to look back and see that God was actually using all of this that we're going through to do things and reach people that would be out of reach to us otherwise. I'm confident in that because that's what God does. So changing circumstances can certainly strain our partnerships. But maybe even more dangerous is changing attitudes. And particularly when they, there are relationships that become damaged or broken in those partnerships, that can become a major problem when you're partnering for the gospel. That's what Paul is addressing here in chapter 4. Now, he has hinted about this all the way through the letter so far. But now he's actually going to deal with it head on. He's, he's going to name names. He's going to call people out. Not in a mean way, but because this is a really important thing to deal with. See, broken relationships within a church, when brothers and sisters in Christ willingly hold on to an offense against one another, that does tremendous damage. It does tremendous damage to them, to those who hold on to those things, and it does tremendous damage to the congregation. A lot of times we just think, oh, it's just... It's just an issue between us. But it actually affects the whole body. It negatively affects the unity of the church. And when the unity of the church starts to break, it starts to cause division and split in the body. It negatively affects the witness of the church. Think about it. (laughs) It's hard to be an effective witness of the power of the gospel that we've received this forgiveness of God when we're not willing to extend it to each other. And when the world sees that, it's kind of like, well, your thing doesn't work. Because look at you. Paul knows that there is a division developing in the church, and there's a rift that exists between a couple of prominent sisters. So he's actually going to have to deal with it. Notice how he begins to address it here in verse 1. I love how he does this. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul starts out by identifying who they are as a people, as a church, as a congregation, based on who they are in Christ. Here's what you mean to me because of what you mean to God. So, I love his approach here because before Paul kind of comes to rebuke, he, he, he rebuilds, he, he affirms them. And he says there's certain things that we need to say are true about each other, that we need to understand are true about each other. When we look at each other as a church, we need to see these things and hold these things to be true towards each other. And Paul lists them. There's actually five things that he identifies about them. Number one, they are brethren to him. That means that they are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. The scriptures teach us that when we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, then we become dearly loved and eternally adopted sons and daughters of God. So whatever family we have, we're now brought into a new family with God as our Father. That's amazing. Sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters now of each other. So at its core, we could say that the church is a family. 
And the local church is then a small part or, or a small family of the greater family of God. Y'all have families. And so you know that families sometimes have personality challenges. Never us, right? Always someone else. <laughs> but we all know what it's like. We all have family where we're like, should we invite them? We should, but do we want to? Yeah, right, holidays are coming up. Well, that happens in the church too. But Paul, he says how we need to see each other, first and foremost, is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are loved by God, we are his children, and we need to see each other that way. Because if we lose that, then we could see each other as the enemy. Secondly, Paul identifies them as loved and beloved. Loved and beloved. This is the same word when Paul says that they're loved and beloved. It's the same word that God the Father uses speaking of his own son Jesus when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Paul says, you are beloved. You are loved. Just before Jesus was crucified, on the very night that he would he was betrayed he prayed and he was praying for his disciples in john chapter 17 it records his prayer for us he's praying for his disciples at present but he's also praying for his future disciples and here's what he asks of god in verse 22 of john 17 he says the glory that you father have given me i've given to them that they may be one even as we are one so he's calling lord Help them to be unified. Verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and, listen, loved them even as you loved me. Church, let that sink in. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He is saying that God loves you and I even as he loves his own son, Jesus. There's no greater love. You are loved. If God so loves us, then we also must love one another. Number three, Paul says that they are longed for. Longed for. It's a word that means greatly desired. It's the only time that it's used in Scripture. When Paul thinks about the Philippians, he, he, he remembers, you are brothers and sisters to me in Christ, of this, this beautiful family that we have. You are loved by God, and you are loved by me, and I long for you. I greatly desire to be with you. Philippi was the congregation that Paul really wanted to get back to. I think he loved going to all the churches, but for some reason, he had this connection with this church that it was like, if I could go... I go there. Karen and I spent 20 years developing, serving in a church and having those relationships and God called us away. And I remember when we came back to New Mexico, we first started to go and try and find a church. And for quite some time, every Sunday, as we would go to try to find a a church, we would cry. Because we long to be back with our loved ones, with our friends. And what's so beautiful, guys, is that 
when God kind of brings you back, brings you into a family of believers, you get that. So now you are the ones that we long for. God's blessed us with that, with you. We, we, we long for being with you. It's, it's made these shutdowns and these, these separate, it's made that separation so hard because we, we long to be with you. Paul calls them his joy. What a beautiful expression. You are my joy. There, here's a guy that is in prison, and if, <laughs> sitting in prison, his circumstances do not provide a lot of opportunity for joy. So what he does is he thinks about his friends, his family in Philippi, and it brings him joy. Lastly, number five, Paul calls the Philippian believers his crown. Remember, he's just been encouraging them in the verses prior to this, run your race. Don't stop running, press in, keep your eyes on the finish line, remember the prize that awaits you, and he says, in essence, for me, that finish line, getting to be with Jesus, the prize that awaits me is to be in his presence with you. You guys are my crown. That's how Paul sees them. Now, when you see one another that way, as brothers and sisters, as dearly loved, as longed for, as, as your joy, as your crown, when you see one another that way, it's only when we stop seeing one another that way that division starts. Paul leaves no question how he really feels about these believers in Philippi. Because he loves them, then he exhorts them. And he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul first reaffirms his love for them, and then he says, okay, so now we've got to deal with this. Now, why would Paul call them to stand firm in the Lord? What does that even mean? <laughs> Sometimes we kind of come up with these, with like Christianese, and we speak our own language as believers. This almost sounds like, hey, stand firm. Okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to do it. Paul's saying, stand firm in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it's sort of like taking public transport in a large city. So if you go to a big city and uh, you want to get around, you hop on a bus or you hop on a train. And if it's a big city, it's usually crowded and usually there's not a seat available. And so what do you do? You get on there and you stand. But there's always some sort of a pole to hang on to, uh, a, a, a rail up top that you grab hold of, because... When that train starts moving, there's going to be opposing forces that happen. And those opposing forces, if you are not standing firm, will send you flying and do damage to you and probably other people. If you've ever braved that and thought, I'm strong enough to do it. So you get on there, and all of a sudden it takes off, and you go, and people just kind of shake their head at you or push you back off of them. (laughs) The way you stand firm is to grab hold. Hold on to the train. (laughs) Hold on to what's there because there's going to be those opposing forces, but you can stand firm because that train doesn't move. It moves, but it doesn't move like like you will with the opposing forces. That's sort of what Paul is saying here. When Paul is calling his beloved Philippians to stand firm in the Lord, it means to hold on to the Lord, hold on to his word. Everything they've learned, take hold of that and, and... Keep it. Why? Because there's going to be things that they will encounter, even amongst themselves, 
that will stumble one another or cause one another to fall if you're trying to stand in your own strength. And a big one is that when we take an offense to what someone has said to us or what someone has done, and it creates a disagreement with one another, and that causes us to stumble, that causes us to fall, that does damage to others. So Paul says, stand firm. Grab on to the Lord. Hold on to his word. Now, what does that look like in this scenario? Well, look at verse 2. He says, I entreat of Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. How do you stand firm? Well, you two who are opposed, you actually need to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. First off, Paul identifies two sisters in the Lord. These two sisters in the Lord are having some sort of disagreement with one another. <laughs> of course, if you've spent much time in the church, uh, then you know that Disagreements are not uncommon, not just between sisters in the Lord, but brothers in the Lord, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We can come up with all kinds of ways to disagree with one another. This disagreement seems to be causing division in the church. It's, ca- it's affecting more than just themselves. And let me remind you, that's always going to be the case because we are a body. That's another metaphor that the scripture uses. So like if my hand starts fighting my other hand, the rest of my body is affected by that. It would be weird if I'm walking down the street and just, you know, doing this. Well, I didn't even recognize it, didn't even realize it. No, you do. So it affects you. We don't know a lot about these ladies. What we do know seems to indicate that they played a prominent role in the ministry of the church based on what Paul actually says it's possible that they were deaconesses or that they served as host homes a separate host homes as gatherings of the church remember in the early church they didn't have buildings like this they would gather in homes and so it's possible that there's some sort of competition that's happening are you going to go to sister evodia's or syntyche's i don't like that one i'm going to go try the other one that never happens right we do know based on verse three that they're fellow workers with others in serving the Lord in Philippi. So these ladies actually have it on their resume that they labored side by side with the Apostle Paul. So it's like they love Jesus. They want to see people one to Jesus. They got to serve with the Apostle. They're bringing and spreading the gospel to their city and their region. They're awesome, but they're having a problem. It's not that they don't love the Lord. They're just having a problem with each other. And this problem is not just theirs. It's becoming the church's. The problem with allowing a rift to go on between two people in the church, much less two leaders in the church, is that it puts people in the congregation in the, in, in the scenario of having to choose sides. Because there's going to be those who say, well, you know, I, I heard that this was said, and I heard that this is, and people start choosing sides. And then those people are divided. And that is what Paul is ultimately concerned with because that division will totally do damage to the the partnership in the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you notice in verse 3, Paul doesn't address the cause of the rift. He only addresses the need to reconcile. He He doesn't even get into what is the problem. 
He doesn't go there. He's not taking sides. He actually pleads with both of them. He says their names. I plead with you, and I plead with you. He doesn't say, I think you're right. I think you're wrong. He doesn't even go there. If it was a, a theological matter, Paul would go there. We know that. He loves to write about theology. Long letters. But he doesn't. And so it's something personal. He's not going to get in the middle of the personal. He just says, you need to deal with it the right way. So Paul entreats, he pleads with both ladies to choose to agree in the Lord. That's not an easy thing to do. He's not saying, take the easy way out. He's actually saying, you need to take the more difficult road. When someone says something or they do something that you disagree with or that that you take as an offense, it's hard to let that go. A lot of times we won't let it go. A lot of times we hang on to it. We might even say, I let it go, but then we hang on to it and we stew over it. I'm the type of person where I I won't sleep very well. Wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Man, what a jerk. Not me, them. And when we do that, we magnify it in our own mind. It could start out as just a tiny little thing. And nobody, nobody even, I didn't even realize. I, I didn't intend that. But in my mind, it's become, they came after me. And we tend not to keep it to ourselves. We tend to kind of have you, help me as I pray for this issue in my life because this sister is so bad. And we start to spread it. So what's really going on that when we choose to hold on to an offense or we keep feeding a disagreement, what is it that's really going on? It's not righteousness that's driving us. It's not like, I want to see God's righteousness, so I'm going to hang on to this. It's our pride. What's really driving us is our pride. It's not others that we're really looking out for. It's our own ego, and we do great damage every time we hang on to our ego or are driven by our ego. Listen, Paul's plea is that instead of all of that, choose to agree in the Lord. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, the word that's translated agree, it's a word that Paul has actually used multiple times in this letter. It's one of the primary words he likes to present in this letter. It means to think the same thing about something. Have the same mind. Have the same mindset. So agree in the Lord. Y'all need to come together and have the same mind about this. That sounds familiar based on what we've studied thus far. Remember what he said back in chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, all these wonderful things, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same word. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, a derivative, same word. So he's saying, you, all of that, bring all of that together. Let that be your mindset. But what does that look like? How do we have that? Well, he goes on in verse 5. He says, have this mind, same word, this agreement among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have it if you'll take hold of it in Christ. And here's what it is. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is it, the mind that we're supposed to have? It's the mind that reflects the gospel of Jesus, the life of Jesus, where we're willing to humble ourselves. We're willing to be the servant. We're willing to even lay our lives down for the good of the world around us. Let's have that mind together. You see, the temptation is to let our personal, and let's just be honest, oftentimes very petty differences be the thing that we let define or govern our relationships. And this is saying it needs to be the opposite. That can't be what defines our relationships, our differences. Even in the body of Christ, we do this. The scriptures are saying that's not okay. Listen, church, we live in a time where there's a thousand things that were, are being thrown at us to try to divide us politically. Oh, my goodness. Socially, all over the place. And so let's divide and let's let our lives be defined by those divisions. That's not, not what we're called to as Christians. What we're called to as Christians is to let our life in Christ define our relationships. Let his mind be what determines how we view and, and, and how we think of one another. We're all called to take on the mindset of Christ, a mindset that evaluates what's truly important, a mindset that puts the well-being of the other above our own, a mindset that calls me to self-sacrifice for the good of the other, even when, maybe even especially when, I'm convinced that they're wrong and I'm right. You know why? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus modeled that. He didn't say, when you get right, then I'll die for you. He said, I'm going to die for you because that's the only way this is gonna, you're going to be made right. And when you get two believers who are willing to agree in the Lord to have that same mindset towards one another, then you know what happens? Repentance, confession, forgiveness, letting things go, moving forward, pursuing the Lord together. That's what happens. So that's what Paul is saying. Have this mind. One last thing to note. When personal disagreements go unresolved and they start to become divisive in the church, then it becomes a problem for the whole church. Paul says there in verse 3, he actually invites others to step in. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's almost like Paul says, if I could be there, I would step in and say, ladies, ladies, let's deal with this. I can't be there, so this person needs to. Now, he didn't name the person. He said, my true companion. Most likely, he's talking about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is the guy that the church sent with the gift for Paul, and he's been working with Paul, and now he's going to go back with this letter from Paul, and he's going to stand up in front of the church, and he's going to read this letter, and he gets to this part, and it's like, and uh, so we need to deal with this. <laughs> and by Paul saying, inviting him to help, that gives him the authority to do so. This is not something 
that we need to leave to the year 65 AD when this letter is written. This is something that we need to bring into our lives today. This is how we are called to live as a congregation. It was a privilege to live in Philippi. We've talked about that. There is, if you were a citizen of Rome, if you could pick a place to live, it wouldn't be the city of Rome, it would be a place like Philippi. Much nicer. All kinds of benefits for you. But if you were a citizen of Rome and a citizen of Philippi, there's actually a book with the names of all the citizens of, that, of Philippi written in that book. And if your name was in that book, it was like an agreement. It meant that you had certain citizenship responsibilities that you were required to follow and uphold, expected to uphold. And so when Paul reminds them that as citizens of heaven, there is a book in heaven, a book of life, and it has our names written in it. That's glorious. But there are also certain citizen responsibilities that we're called to follow, that we're called to uphold. The way that we do that is by having this same mindset as Jesus. Letting the gospel of Jesus be what shapes us and guides us in our relationships with one another. That's why this isn't just for Philippi. This is for Las Vegas. It's for Calvary Chapel. It's for us. Your names are written in the book of life. And so let's have that mindset together. Lord, we confess to you this morning, these are, this is not easy to do. It's not easy to live. We are sometimes um, just really challenging people <laughs> to be around or to fellowship with or to have a relationship with. And so, God, we, we ask that you'd help us. I pray, Lord, for anybody here that as, as we've studied this, you're speaking to them and you're telling them that you need to deal with this in a relationship that they have with someone else where there's division, there's there's holding on to something that they need to forgive and let go of. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us the grace to do that. Help us to see each other as we are in Christ. That we are brothers and sisters. That we are dearly loved by God and by one another. that we are a joy, that we are a crown. Help us, Lord, to long to have that fellowship with each other. Lord, let that that love be the thing that is what defines our relationships together. And then, Lord, as you teach us to love one another and help us to grow and serve each other, then let that be what the world around us sees. Jesus, you said that it's not our great theology that we'd be known by. It's not uh, the appearance of our, our building. It's not any of those things. It's, it's the love that we have one for another. And so, Lord, we pray you'd work your love out through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.